Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you again to Hans and Gulchin. Um, I owe them a profound and deep debt of gratitude for, thank for inviting me again. However, I have been given a very difficult topic with not one but two incredibly difficult terms to define, which as a rule you don't generally do in titles. I could spend 30 minutes on each term if I wanted to, um, but I, I shouldn't. Um, to get the first out of the way with first, um, I'm going to just simply define the Middle Ages as um, the thousand years after the fall of Rome, for the sake of simplicity, even though there are obviously subdivisions which make a lot of sense. Um, most people generally divide into at least three periods, the early, the high, and the late Middle Ages. And there are definitely differences in terms of the legal order, the ways of thinking about the law, um, but um, I don't propose to give a, a, a chronological overview because that would be a narrative and that would be very boring. Um, what I want to do is identify uh, commonalities throughout the period and uh, have a much more thematic sort of speech. Um, so I think the first topics to get to grips with, though, are the ideas of natural order and natural elites. Um, best place, obviously, to look, at, look for these are um, the definitions in Democracy of the God That Failed and in um, From Aristocracy to Monarchy to Democracy. Um, this concept of ordered anarchy is, seems to be very much bound up in also the Hoppian definition of a conservative. Um, this ordered anarchy is the historical, empirical um, view of what libertarianism is or could be or, or, or was in the past. Um, and if I can briefly quote some of um, the definition of a conservative in Democracy of the God That Failed, um, conservative refers to someone who recognises the old and natural through the noise of anomalies and accidents and who defends, supports and helps to preserve it against the temporary and anomalous. Within the realm of the humanities, including the social sciences, a conservative recognises families, fathers, mothers, children, grandchildren and households based on private property and in cooperation with a community of other households as the most fundamental, natural, essential, ancient and indispensable social units. Moreover, the family household also represents the model of the social order at large. Just as a hierarchy uh, in, exists in a family, so is there a hierarchy within a community of families of apprentices, servants, masters, vassals, knights, lords, overlords, and even kings, tied together by an elaborate and intricate system of kinship relations. Uh, the definition goes on, um, but you, you already get a sense from that brief quotation. Um, and as many of you will know, an important aspect of this idea of a natural order or ordered anarchy is a natural elite. And um, this uh, will be a, a very important part of what I'm going to be saying. Uh, essentially, the idea is that um, some people are quite obviously more intelligent, more far-sighted, have better moral uh, character than other people, and not everyone's words will have the same force or authority. Um, internal, not external authority, not, not actually imposing through compulsion, uh, if you like, uh, their words, but not everyone will be a natural elite. You will always, however, see uh, natural aristocracies arising. What the natural uh, order or ordered anarchy 
it means then is uh, not an absence of government, but um, a government of judges and peacemakers, government that um, doesn't create law, but finds law and upholds law, and um, a government which is asked for and a government which um, can be challenged and ultimately given the sack. Um, the king, the various um, feudal, although that's a dif difficult term to get to grips with um, in terms of how it's specific manifestations, but um, chieftains and so on and so forth. The commonality is that all of this was basically stateless. Um, and yet, there is from the outset, for any libertarian or classical liberal uh, or conservative, in this definition at least, student of history, the difficulty is that the historiography is basically all wrong. Um, now, I don't claim that historians get everything wrong um, when they act as archivists, when they look for actual um, evidence in the physical sense, when they translate things, when they um, keep themselves to what they know, they can do quite good work. When they start to mess about in concepts, however, um, they're almost entirely wrong. Um, uh, Professor Hopper's ambition is to be an anti-intellectual intellectual. My ambition is a little less ambitious. It's to be an anti-historian historian. And um, there are, have been a few of these before, but not enough. Um, a much neglected one is um, Arthur Joseph Penty, who was a, a great uh, distributist revisionist, so he wasn't right on everything. But um, he senses a conspiracy against the Middle Ages. Um, he says, um, and I quote, Feudal England was not the horrible nightmare conjured up by lying historians, interested in painting the past as black as possible in order to make modern conditions appear tolerable by comparison. Um, so there, I think there is, quite obviously, uh, a conspiracy against the Middle Ages, which I'll go into in a, a, a few minutes. Um, but again, a problem, just to dwell on English history for a, a few minutes, is... Um, if you look for the appearance of the word anarchy in English history, one period will jump out at you. And it's the 18 or so years um, which were described as a time that was so awful that Christ, in the words of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Christ and his angels slept. Now, why was this? This was said to be a period when law and order broke down, when um, there was a massive um, and destructive and terrible civil war. Um, but that's not anarchy. And the men at the time didn't call this an anarchy. The men at the time um, didn't really engage in, in very much over-conceptualization. The term anarchy was applied to it uh, in the late 19th century by uh, the uh, emerging historicists, uh, academics, uh, in particular, the word uh, anarchy was applied to it by uh, a historian called, called John Round, who was a student of the Whig historian Stubbs. Um, and so, already you can see, really, historians, in some senses, can be a hindrance rather than a help. In terms of explaining this conspiracy, um, I don't want to talk too long about it, but Penty offers a few possible explanations. He borrows them from William Cobbett, he says, um, he, 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 um, he says that 
the reason basically is that uh, there were so many people living on the plunder of the monasteries and the guilds following the Middle Ages and consequently interested in maintaining a prejudice against the Middle Ages as the easiest way of covering their tracks. So um, I think that could be a bit extreme. It doesn't hold in, ev in every case, but certainly there is an element of self-interest in such a catastrophic misconceptualization um, of this uh, entire period of a thousand years. Um, and so, to begin to get to grips with the Middle Ages, there are various concepts which are very familiar to a libertarian or classical liberal or conservative audience. Um, I think one of the most important is that of kinship. Everything was dependent on families, communities, and trust. The household was the basic unit, um, and this has been defined as a, um, a unit of comradeship and trust. Groups of households came together as hundreds and counties, counties and hundreds came together uh, to form duchies and duchies to form, king, to form kingdoms. Um, kinship bonds are really one of the main keys to understanding uh, such an, an incredibly simple and elegant legal order. Um, for instance, you look at some of the earliest um, legal orders, the Salic law, the laws of Ethelred, um, also the edict of the Lombard king Rothari in 643. These are all very interesting. They give long lists of um, misdemeanors, if you like, and money payments for them. The system of money payments was obviously, uh, it obviously made a lot of sense. Um, and indeed, it's obviously much less expensive for society than um, putting a criminal in prison and making the victim pay for him. Um, and you had this very detailed schedule of payments, so much for cutting off an ear, so much uh, for cutting off a leg, and so much for breaking an arm, and, and then they, they specified about multiple or compound fractures and so on and so forth. Um, and a very important payment was that of the Wur Guild, which was the man price, if you like, um, which obviously varied from person to person, which on the face of it seems unjust. It seems to say that some human life is uh, less expensive than others, but well, in a social order, some people have different roles and uh, you, can, you can entirely understand why um, some people will be seen to be more valuable. Um, the kinship relations, however, existed parallel to um, uh, lordship relations. Uh, communities would often uh, voluntarily, at least in the early Middle Ages, commend themselves to the protection uh, of lords. And the central concept uh, here um, is that of fealty. Fealty is distinct from obedience. Fealty means faith, if you like. And faith, at least to any believer or to anyone who, I'm, I'm no linguist, but I'm sure there's some etymological root, it's a two-way street. All the great 
um, all the great theorists um, understood and uh, all the practitioners uh, misunderstood at their own cost that a loyal lord, um, a, a loyal lord had loyal vassals, a loyal king had loyal subjects. Again, this is bound up with the uh, taking of oaths, which were given incredible significance. Um, for instance, the, the German coronation oath from the 10th century is fascinating. Um, it takes the form of an, of an interrogation. It's not terribly precise, but um, if I can just quote, let the Lord Archbishop question the prince in these words. Wilt thou uphold the holy faith transmitted to thee by Catholic men and follow after righteous works? Wilt thou be a protector and defender of holy church and her ministers? And this is the important one. Wilt thou rule and defend this realm which is vouchsafed to thee by God according to the righteousness of thy fathers? And here the king or would-be king must answer, in so far as I am able, with divine aid and the succor of all his faithful, I swear to act faithfully in all things. Then the archbishop must address the people and ask them if they will submit themselves to um, the commands of the prince and governor. And then there must be an acclamation of yea, yea, amen, yes, yes, so be it. And the positioning of that oath is itself symbolic of a attempt and um, it was often very successful uh, of guarding against any kind of absolutism. Only after the oath does the king become, only after that is he acclaimed king. Um, and there's, a, there's actually a fascinating um, oath on the other side of the, um, of the relationship from um, attributed to Aragon. Some people um, say, I, I'm not an expert, but some people say this is uh, actually uh, mythical and it didn't happen. But in any case, it's what I'm going to say is very, um, very much symptomatic of the way they thought about law and kingship. Um, the Aragonese nobles said um, that they would, they, they said, we who are each individually as powerful or as great as you, and combined much greater, agree to listen to your commands if you protect our liberties, and if not, not. And again, the, the right of resistance to kingship was very, very well established, very clear. Um, many theorists um, were very clear that tyrannicide was absolutely fine. Um, there were two main approaches really that you could take to, to medieval law, that of customary law or that of uh, the natural law, law from God. And in both cases, not obeying the law as a king had um, very, very dire implications. And um, so Manigold of Lautenbach says that uh, an unfaithful king uh, should be expelled um, as if he were an unfaithful shepherd. The papal party um, had great men such as John of Salisbury who said that a king who uh, misused his power um, could be killed because he had been given a great gift from God and misusing such power was an insult to God. 
those were the two broadly um, liberal-minded interpretations of law and uh, the legal order. It seems to me the, the detrimental one which started to come in in the later Middle Ages was the resurrection of the Roman law, uh, where the principle was that of sovereignty. Uh, the Roman law said the, there is one source of law, it is the emperor or the king. Whereas customary law and even church opinion on law, which was perhaps more abstract and more um, and, uh, and more not entirely um, the, the same as customary law, uh, they, they both agreed that the law should not be one of sovereign territoriality. Whereas the Roman law uh, flatly contradicted that. Um, and indeed, if you wanted to introduce, however, the Roman law into the medieval structure, you would come across great difficulties. The medieval order was very strong at resisting status developments. Um, Alfonso X of Castile in the 13th century, his court produced a great legal work called the Sieti Partidas, the Seven Parts. And this is seen as one of the great moves towards the Roman law. Uh, and yes, even this uh, concedes that a king should always listen to the great men, uh, that he should always, in changing the law or uh, bringing in new laws, although the concept was alien to them, um, he should always heed the words of the great men in Anglo-Saxon, the Witan. Um, and so you have a very decentralized legal order from the bottom to the top. And it's, it is um, to be questioned whether the legal order had any hierarchy at all because uh, while all of the main textbooks and all the court books, if you like, paint a picture of feudalism as a structure sort of like that, with a definite top and definite gradations, um, that was not necessarily the case. Um, the, the standard idea is that the king was the top, then princes, dukes, earls, and so on and so forth. Well, king, uh, the, the French kings were often themselves the vassals of mere counts or bishops. That doesn't make any sense in the pyramid version of feudalism. And another, um, another idea is uh, that feudalism was not only a pyramid, but a pyramid within a, a specific uh, territory. Well, that's also nonsense, because um, it, it, was all, it was often the case that lords would have, uh, lords would hold territory from various uh, lords across what we would see today as territorial boundaries. Um, the Count of Luxembourg was nominally a, a, a vassal of the, uh, the German emperor, but he also held a pension from the French king. And such arrangements were often very sensible, often very useful. You could decide which jurisdiction you wanted at a, at a particular time. 
Um, there's a, a, an even more interesting example. John Toole was um, enfiefed to four um, lords. Uh, I think all of them counts. And there is a particular uh, case of him describing how he will balance these obligations. He says, if it should happen that the Count of Grand Pre should be at war with the Countess and Count of Champagne for his own personal grievances, I will personally go to the assistance of the Count of Grand Pre and will send to the Countess and Count of Grand Pre, if they summon me, the knights I owe for the fief which I hold of them. But if the Count of Grand Pre shall make war on the Countess and Count of Champagne on behalf of his friends, I shall serve in person with the Countess and Count of Champagne, and I will send one knight to the Count of Grand Pre to give the service owed from the fief which I hold of him. Now, whether John Toole actually had to fight against his own men, we don't know. But it's a very interesting idea, at least. Um, but, and this wasn't unique at all. You saw um, men such as the great knight William Marshall serving multiple kings um, of multiple territories. And at the time of the Third Crusade, um, William Marshall was a vassal of uh, Richard Coeur de Lyon, the Lionheart, who was away on crusade. John, uh, Richard the Lionheart's brother, decided to rebel against Richard. Uh, William was also a vassal of him. Uh, later, when John uh, uh, became king um, and lost Normandy, uh, William was, well, he, he owned lands in, he held lands in Normandy, but when Philip Augustus took uh, Normandy, he managed to retain his lands. Um, and he managed to work out a compromise where he decided himself to be the lord, uh, to, to be the man of the, um, the French king in what we would nowadays call France and the English king in what we would nowadays call England. Um, and so you see that there is really, um, there are at least two main differences between the modern way of thinking about law and the modern way of doing law. The first is that the hierarchy in feudalism, even though it's, uh, there's an awful lot said about it, is pretty opaque, pretty diffuse. Uh, it can even be downright upside down. And another difference is where there was something like territorial rule, it wasn't exclusive and it wasn't absolute. Um, for instance, clergymen could be, um, they had the right to be tried by uh, members of the church rather than secular courts. So there was no ultimate um, uh, jurisdiction. Um, there was no one person or one um, institution which controlled or felt that it owned everyone in a given area. Um, and there were very different uh, views of the person of the king. You don't see until the 17th century anything like the so-called divine right of kings. This is the view that 
the king is somehow always and everywhere inspired by God or accountable only to him. Um, a very instructive comparison is between James I of England and King St. Louis IX of France. James I of England wrote a lot, um, for a king at least, and he fancied himself to be an intellectual. Um, but he wrote two books relevant to his view of the estate of kingship, and one of them was uh, addressed to his son. And it was a manual on how to be a king, how to be a ruler. And it makes for very unpleasant reading. It essentially says, you're the boss. You can do no wrong. Whereas King St. Louis IX, writing to his uh, son Philip, uh, who would become a Philip III, has a very different view of what it means to be a king, a very different view of the consequences if you behaved badly. Um, and he cautions his son to behave a certain way. Uh, he says that a king should be just, merciful, virtuous, all the things you would expect. He also says, very specifically, quote, if you should discover that you are in wrongful possession of anything, even if possession of it was uh, acquired by your ancestors, surrender it forthwith. Similar advice was given to a member of uh, Louis's family by Pope Clement IV, who says very specifically, um, if someone comes to you with a, a claim against you, if you're a judge in your own case, you need to make sure that the burden of proof rests on you. Um, now, it's very difficult to expect someone to judge uh, against themselves in their own case, but there was some expectation of such virtues. Um, and always there was this spectre of what might happen if you didn't obey the, the rather vague oaths that you would make um, at your coronation. Magna Carta, for instance, was reissued several times throughout the 13th century and later on. Um, and you see similar things elsewhere in the con on the continent. And so Philip, um, Philip, who became Philip III, was being given very practical advice uh, by his father, not just, um, his father wasn't just telling him to be a, a good boy. Um, and so, there is no sense in the Middle Ages of um, monarchs being somehow sacrosanct or divine. In fact, it's only very late on in England um, that the English king starts to call himself and wants others to call him uh, His Majesty. That, that, um, that came about in 1399 with Richard II, um, one of the first absolutists. You only start to see that towards the end of the period. And so just uh, trying to, because I've got very little time left, briefly say a few words about um, the role of the church. Um, opinion is divided about the role of the church in restraining uh, monarchs, but uh, even um, Francois Guizot, the great philosophic historian, who is generally 
critical of the church, says, um, and I quote, at the epoch under consideration, the temporal was mere force, ungovernable brigandage. The church, however imperfect her notions still were concerning morality and justice, was infinitely superior to such a temporal government as this. The cries of the people continually pressed her to take its place when a pope or the bishops proclaimed that a prince had forfeited his rights and that his subjects were absolved from their oath of fidelity. This intervention, without doubt subject to various abuses, was often, in particular cases, legitimate and salutary. It was, in other words, very important um, and, uh, to, to have um, a organization or an institution which was not a state, but which, which, which commanded the loyalty of people and um, allowed them to, to, from time to time, rise up uh, and tell the king where to go. Um, and just the, a phrase that jumps out, um, that of fidelity. Again, fidelity and faithfulness, this, this was um, a very important concept. And uh, it, these oaths, however, could be dissolved. They weren't entirely indissoluble. Um, for instance, uh, the, well, the best example is from the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem, where the court of the Burgesses of Jerusalem would very, very easily dissolve any uh, oath of homage or fealty. Um, but you, you would see it uh, elsewhere if any one party reneged on their oath or behaved badly. Um, it was said that you had um, the right to withdraw your faith in the other party. Um, and so, I could go on for much longer, but I, I, I'm running out of time. And so, I will just say that um, the Middle Ages had stored up incredible treasures. Um, Lord Acton uh, would have broadly agreed. He said, um, looking back over the space of 1,000 years, which we call the Middle Ages, to get an estimate of the work they had done, if not towards perfection in their institutions, at least towards attaining the knowledge of political truth, this is what we find. Representative government, was unknown to the, which was unknown to the ancients, was almost universal. The methods of election were crude, but the principle that no tax was lawful that was not granted by the class that paid it, that is, that taxation was inseparable from representation, was recognized not as the privilege of certain countries, but as the right of all. Not a prince in the world, said Philip de Comines, can levy a penny without the consent of the people. Slavery was almost everywhere extinct, and absolute power was deemed more intolerable and criminal than slavery. The right of insurrection was not only admitted, but defined as a duty sanctified by religion. The issue of ancient politics was an absolute state planted on slavery. The political produce of the Middle Ages was a system of states in which authority was restricted by the representation of powerful classes, by privileged associations, and by the acknowledgement of duties superior to those which are imposed by man. Further said Lord Acton, how did the 16th century husband the treasure which the Middle Ages had stored up? The answer is not very well. 
to illustrate my thoughts on the matter in, uh, in a proper way would, would take much longer, but if I can end with a few choice words of verse from Macaulay. Oh, for that ancient spirit which curbed the Senate's will. Oh, for the tents which in old time whitened the sacred hill. In those brave days, our fathers stood bravely side by side. They faced the Marcian fury. They tamed the Fabian pride. They sent the fiercest Quinctius, an outcast forth from Rome. They drove the haughtiest Claudius with shivered fasces home. But what their care bequeathed us, our madness flung away. All the ripe fruit of threescore years was blighted in a day. Exult, ye proud patricians, the hard-fought fight is o'er. We strove for honour, t'was in vain, for freedom tis no more. Thank you.